welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. So we are thrilled today to have author Sheila Eisenberg on Ivy League Murders. She is the author of several books, and today we are talking to her about her groundbreaking book, Women Who Love Men Who Kill. Women Who Love was first published in 1991, and it is 35 stories of prison passion. That was 30 years ago. Since then, of course, technology has eased the way for passion to bloom between killers behind bars and the women who seem to seek them out. Warm welcome to you, Sheila. Thank you so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to this very much. We have as well, and and Laura has only read your book about six times, (laughs) so. (laughs) And I also read it when it came out in the 90s. Did you? I did, yes. So this has been a real treat for me. Great, thank you. It was the first time I had read it this time as well. I just found it absolutely riveting. I could not stop. I actually listened to it on Audible and I could not stop listening to it. Thank you. Fascinating. And lest our listeners think we are losing our Ivy League thread, we also have a particular story we're going to talk about later on in the show about Norman Mailer, a killer named Jack Abbott, and a Columbia PhD woman who married Abbott and co-authored a book with him. So, Sheila, we're assuming that you're not as twisted as we are. What, <laughs> what drew you to this fascinating subject? It's, um, it's actually a kind of a strange beginning. I was a reporter for a daily newspaper in upstate New York. And after that, I became a press secretary in Albany. As a press secretary, I had more time on my hands because you know, as a daily reporter, you have no time on your hands, you're always busy. So as a press secretary, I had more time on my hands. And one day I noticed a story, I think it was in the New York Times about a Wall Street stockbroker who had gone on trial for murdering his second wife. Her body had been found on the New York State Thruway in a ditch. There was a picture of him on the front page of the paper, and standing next to him was an attractive young woman, and the caption read that she was his fiancée. And I had time to read the article and look at the picture and, and think, and I thought, well, well, why is she engaged to this man who may have murdered his second wife? Isn't she worried? Isn't she frightened? And then I thought, 
wait a second, this is not unusual. I thought back to my days as a reporter, and I remembered some stories that I knew about inmates, prisoners, who had gotten involved with women. So that was really, that made you become interested in the topic. Um, One of the stories was very local in the town that I live in. As a journalist, as a reporter, I knew of many prisoners who had formed relationships with women. And I started thinking about that. And I thought, well, maybe the woman who was engaged to marry the stockbroker had something in common with these women. And I thought of a local story in the town that I live in where a woman who was also a reporter got involved with a man who was in for felony murder, got very involved with him, ended up marrying him, ended up having a petition go around the state of New York to get his sentence commuted. She was ultimately successful. He got his sentence commuted, and it's a long story. I won't go into it now, but it it had a tragic ending. But anyway, all these stories came together in my head, and my head, which I said I had more time to think, And I started thinking, why? Why are these women doing this? I didn't think about why the prisoners were doing it, because it seemed to me that it was very obvious why they were doing it. They were doing it because when you're a prisoner, you have lots of time and, sure, form a relationship. But I thought, why are the women doing it? So I went to the New York State Library, which is supposedly the second best in the country, and I started looking the subject up prisoners and women, prison relationships, inmates and marriage and all kinds of different topics. And there was nothing on the subject. And I thought, hmm, maybe this is your first book, Sheila. So I went home and wrote a book proposal and very quickly found an agent and he very quickly sold the book to Simon & Schuster. Now, was it difficult to get the women to talk to you about their relationships? Back then, when I wrote the first edition of the book for Simon & Schuster, it was very hard to find the women because there was no internet. Ah, interesting. But once I found the women, it was not difficult to get them to talk because everybody likes to talk about the person they think they're in love with, don't they? I want to back up a little bit because I love nothing more than a good redemption story, Ah. put it to you that way. Mm -hmm. And so you have to assume... But what is it that attracts these women to these men who've committed these brutal crimes? I just don't get it. Because I, I think you're right. I think the men, it's obvious. They get the attention. They obviously get these women to do things for them. But what is the draw for women? You say it in your book, and I think it's a very interesting answer. You had sort of a common theme in your book, which I found to be fascinating. Well, I mean, you're asking me the basic question, why? The question that plagued me, why are the women doing it? And the question that everybody always asks, why? I mean, that's the reason for the book, Women Who Love Men Who Kill. (laughs) Why do women love men who kill? So you want me to give it to you in a nutshell? Well, or or in a story, Sheila. I mean, you've got plenty plenty of good ones, you know, so. Um, Well, I mean, there was a woman in Pittsburgh She was married to a man who beat her all the time. It was a a simple case of domestic violence, which I have now come to call domestic terrorism. I think it's a better term. And I went to Pittsburgh and spent a lot of time interviewing her. We spent many days together talking about it. He 
was injured in an accident and ended up as a quadriplegic. So he was at her mercy. She had to take care of him. But in the meantime, she met a man in prison who was a murderer. And she got involved with him and she fell in love with him and she began a relationship with him. So her story is sort of very symptomatic of the why. She was a victim. She was an abuse victim. She was a trauma victim. And what I found in my three dozen interviews for this book, for the first edition, was that all of the women had been abused in some way. Some of them physically, like the woman in Pittsburgh, some of them psychologically, which today we have a term for it. It's called coercive control, where the man in the relationship controls everything, like where you go, who you see, what you do, controls your money. Other women had been sexually abused by their fathers or other male relations. And because these women were abused or traumatized or victimized, however you want to say it, a relationship with a man in prison, it sounds counterintuitive, it sounds strange, but it makes sense. These relationships are safe. If a man is behind bars for life, he's not going to hurt you. In addition, if you are the woman on the outside and he's behind bars, you have some control in the relationship. So I won't say that you are the boss, but you are the person who's sort of dominant in a sense, because you are the one who decides how much money to put in his bank or whatever they call it in prison. You're the one who decides when to visit, how many phone calls to accept, and you're the liaison with his attorney. So you're in a power position. So for these women that I interviewed, I interviewed three dozen women for that first edition. Every single one had been abused. And that, to me, seemed to be the answer to the question. It's a safe relationship. That's which, very interesting. As I said, sounds counterintuitive, but that's what I found. I also found it interesting that the more infamous the prisoner is, the more attention they get. So the Scott Petersons, the spree killers, the school shooters, these people are getting tremendous amount of letters from women. And that you write about people are so starved for celebrity that that's almost a way to get it. You know, you write that you can't reach out to maybe Johnny Depp or to your favorite Hollywood star and have that reciprocated, but you can do that to a prisoner. Yeah. In the first edition, celebrity, I have to say there's a real big difference between celebrity then and celebrity now. But what celebrity always has in common is a desire to be famous. And overall, in both editions, I write that it's easier to become famous if you connect your name to a notorious killer in prison than to a movie star or a a Johnny Depp, as you said. But today, celebrity has really changed a lot. And I write about this in the second edition. And to me, it's super sad. Celebrity is no longer attached to achievement or accomplishment. Celebrity today is just attached to being there, to being known, to being seen. And it started years ago with Paris Hilton. I don't know if you remember her. Oh, yeah. She was was famous for doing nothing. And then it went on to the Kardashians, who in my book 
are still famous for doing nothing and they're billionaires for doing nothing. I know some of them sell clothing and cosmetics, but okay. You know, they do that based on their fame. Then we have people on television who are famous because they're overweight or they're famous because they're hoarders or they're famous because they buy a new house. And millions of people watch these shows about heavy people or hoarders or buying a house. So other people look at that and they say, well, if they're famous for being just ordinary people, why can't I be famous too? But I'm not a hoarder, I'm not overweight, I'm not a Kardashian. And of course, in the ultimate act of famous people who are famous for doing nothing, we had the election of a president who was a, a reality TV show star, Donald Trump, and he did nothing. He was our president, he was elected for doing nothing. So everybody looks at these famous people and say, well, I want to be famous too, because nobody wants to be unknown. The cynic in me thinks that some people kill to become famous. Literally, this is of the no. why. No, they don't kill to become famous. Uh-uh. I don't, don't know. Agree. Uh, well, I don't agree. I don't agree. I think. What that, do you think, yeah. Sheila? Well, why do you think they kill to become famous? I do think there are people who commit certain acts. They feel unseen, and so they commit a really outrageous crime to become famous. Or that is a nice little addendum for them for committing the crime. Ted Bundy would have been an absolute nobody had he not been a serial killer. And he is probably one of the more famous people on the spectrum. Let's first of all, let's not use the word famous. Let's use the word notorious. Secondly, right. Bundy, you can't possibly think he killed to be known or notorious. I mean, you need to talk to a criminologist here, which I am not, but people kill for very complex reasons, like the school shooters, the 15-year-old boy who just killed those four poor teenagers in Michigan. He didn't kill to be famous or notorious. He wrote a note that said, help me. He killed because he was sick and troubled and because also because he was given a gun. I yeah, mean, I, I don't I, agree that people I, kill to be notorious. I'm more cynical than you are. And and having worked as a private investigator for over 20 years, I'm sorry, I, I do see a tendency towards being so crime hungry that people will do almost, I mean, so fame hungry that they'll do almost anything in the name. Well, you could be right. I don't know. We should ask some criminologists. But to get back to the women who get involved with these notorious killers. This is definitely their attempt to become notorious also or famous. And in the first edition of the book, every single serial killer in that edition had women connected with his name. In the second edition of the book, I write about how serial killers are no longer the popular ones. Today, we have mass murderers. We have killers yeah. who go in and shoot up a school or shoot up a bar or shoot up a concert. They want more bang for their buck. They don't want to kill one person at a time and keep their crime secret. So maybe you are right, I don't know. They want to go in and kill five, 10, 20, 30 people at once. Even I those mean, like, people have women connected with them. That just surprises yeah. me. I was very surprised that those people were getting that kind of attention when I read that. 
in your book, but it really does kind of match up to our Instagram, Snapchat society. Exactly. I know. I mean, yeah. I mean, if somebody's got followers on Instagram, like 500,000 followers, they're famous for having followers. You know, 50 years ago, people were famous for writing a book or discovering something in science Mm -hmm. or for painting a beautiful picture or composing music. The Rolling Stones were famous for their music. They weren't famous because they had followers. Anyway, don't get me started. I'll go off on the deep end. Can I get back? Can I kind of go into a a different part of this with the women that really interested me? And there are all kinds of women you talk about, and I've explored this a lot on my own. And a lot of these women are very intelligent. You see jurors. I found it very interesting that all kinds of women fall for these men. Lawyers, jurors, any women who come in contact with prisoners, basically. And the excuses they make for these men's crimes, you say this, nobody basically says, he did it, I forgive him. They all make up excuses about why he's innocent or he didn't mean it. Nobody's really in reality in these relationships. Can you talk about that? Well, first of all, occasionally a woman will say, he did it and I forgive him. But you are right, the majority of the women mitigate the crime with excuses. Or they'll say he did it, but he's changed. Or he did it, but he found religion. A lot of them who who do accept that he did it say, but he's a different person now. Right. Or addiction. I heard that a lot. Like Addiction, drinking. Yeah, he, he was drinking. made him do it. Yeah. He would never do it because now he doesn't drink. Now he's, right. you know, I mean, he's in prison, of course. He's right. And then you said, you said something about reality. For a woman in a love relationship with a murderer, reality just doesn't enter the picture most of the time. Now, I don't want to make any blanket generalizations, so I will say most of the time. A woman in love with a murderer thinks she's having a regular relationship. If she marries him, she thinks it's a marriage. But the reality is that marriage and relationships start off very exciting, stage one, romantic buzz. Will he call? Will he come? What will we do? It's thrilling. But all relationships eventually become what's called companionate. They settle into a pattern. You deeply love the person, but someone still has to take out the garbage. (laughs) Someone still has to take the kid to school, right? Those relationships with convicted murderers never go past stage one. So they're always thrills and chills and roller coaster rides. So there's no reality there. As a result, when the man does get out, if he gets out, if there's sentences commuted or he's paroled or whatever, the relationships usually end. There are, of course, like I said, exceptions to everything. Yeah, because the whole idea of it doesn't go beyond the kind of courtly love, like you like Mm -hmm. to say, Laura, that courtly love thing. And it can be idealized, right? Because you are dating the ultimate unavailable male by having him incarcerated, right? I love, I just want to circle back to what you say in the book time and time again, which I find fascinating, is that oftentimes the woman does have control in these relationships. Mm -hmm. But it's strange to me that they pick a person who is convicted usually of a violent crime or several violent crimes. And that it's like trying to assume control over something that caused you trauma earlier in your life for that woman. It's kind of like the caged bad boy. In a strange way, you can see the appeal of this. I also 
find it interesting or, or sad the way these women rationalize, dismiss the victims, because mm. so many of the victims are women that these men kill. That's Some a good of, point. They seem to kind of dehumanize. Maybe they have to do that. It's almost like a survival mechanism that they can't really make these victims really human to them and still love this man. That's a good, really good point. Something I really haven't focused on, the victims. Uh, none of the women talk about the victims. It's just not a, it's a non-issue for them. They're focused on the relationship and where it's going and how to get through each day. Also, the perspective of the families of the victims, how they view these women who seek these men out. I would think that would be a very hard pill to swallow for the families of these victims. It's like, what do you do with that in some ways? I think, I think the families of the victims would see those women the way most of society does as they're just crazy right. and dismiss them. I don't think people in general, society in general, are willing to look at the deeper causes behind this phenomenon, which I write about, which is that women in our society are the ones who are raped, who are victims of intimate partner terrorism, who are sexually abused as children more than men yep. or more than boys. And as long as we are the victims, this will continue. And I don't think most people care about that. And I don't think most people care about these women. And I think that's easier to take a segment of our population, murderers, and just put them away and not think about them. Women who are involved with them and just put them away and not think about them. I just think people don't care. That's I what think, I think. I think one thing too, I couldn't help thinking about when I was reading your book as well, or listening to your book, was that these men are also safe in another way to these women. They are not out there at bars, flirting with other women, picking up other women. Hey, honey, right. I'm going on a business trip and I'm, I've got night golf I've got to go mm -hmm. to right now. These men are safe for these women too, because they virtually, unless they cheat with other inmates, they can't cheat on these women in some ways. Well, you keep bringing up these really interesting points. And that is a great point. I think when I wrote the second edition and I was interviewing women for this new edition, a lot of them were saying to me that they go on prisoner pen pal websites, which didn't exist when I wrote the first edition, and they scroll through them looking for men. And I kept thinking, well, why are they doing that? I'm not asking why do they get involved. I'm asking why do they go on those sites? Right. Why don't they go to Tinder or other dating sites? And I think that you've just hit the nail on the head. I think the reason is because these men are completely, they're like in a box. Here we are. We can't cheat on you. We can't hit you. We can't control you. We can't hurt you. Come and get us. If you want a relationship, if you want a guy, which in our society, it's still very important to have a guy and be in a relationship and be Mrs. Somebody, we're here. It's almost like a marketplace for women who, whether they realize it or not, want to just go to the market and pick a guy who can't do any of these things to them. Reading your book, I've learned about a lot of new things like meetaprisoner.com and JPay, which JPay is a, a, you can do money transfers, emails. It's a whole prisoner mm -hmm. app to support prisoners. So this was very interesting to me that women do actively seek 
so this isn't an accident, but they go to directly to these exactly. websites. For writing the second edition, my job was to update it for the digital age. And I found out about all this stuff also. I knew about writeaprisoner.com, but I didn't know about JPay and I didn't know about all the different ways that the internet allows prisoners and women to interact. But I didn't really know that women went to those websites and just scroll looking for men. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's kind of like looking for a foreign bride, those things. I mean, it is. It's just like a big menu. I think it's exactly the same. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought it was interesting in your book that you mentioned that in a way, these women continuing to be victimized. They've been victimized their whole lives, and then they enter into these relationships, and they're kind of continuing to be victimized. I mean, now they're being victimized by the system, by the prison system, but they're still victimized. They're not really... Um, I I don't know. I don't know if I... I don't think they're being victimized. No, but I think they see themselves as being victimized. Because I don't think they're being victimized, but it's mentioned in the book that they see themselves as victims. They're not really taking over like the power of being empowered. I think they see the prison system as a victimizing system, which Absolutely. Is that's what is. I mean. Yeah, it is. We live in a carceral society and our prison system punishes, it's punitive, it doesn't rehabilitate, it doesn't help anybody except people who get rich. So, for example, those JPay and those other corporations. Oh, big business. Yes, big exist, business. Yeah. They're all located in Florida because of the tax thing. And they are making millions, maybe even billions on our prisoners and on the women who are involved with them. Sheila, can you explain that to our listeners? How are they making this money? Okay. Today in 2021, going into 2022, if you have a relationship with a prisoner, whether you're his girlfriend, his wife, his mother, his family, you get him a JPay account. You put it on your credit card, you pay for it. In the prison, not all prisons, but most, there's a little machine which looks like an ATM machine that is installed in the prison. The prisoners who have a JPay account through your account, the person on the outside, can go over to the little JPay machine and they can put in their password and they can go online to get emails, to send emails, to get e-videos, to send e-videos, whatever. They cannot go on the internet for obvious reasons. And they can only use as much JPay power as the person on the outside is paying for. So they buy coupons or stamps for so much money. So the more money that the family or the girlfriend or the wife puts in, the more that the prisoner can use the JPay system. I see. So JPay is for emailing correspondence, commissary, right. and presumably, mm, right, as the well. The person has to have a pay, an iPad. It's like an iPad, but it's a JPad. They're like sixty. It's, it's a little device. Yeah. And I think it, when I wrote the book, they were sixty nine ninety nine. Someone's got to buy it for them. I went on their on their website. It's actually it's this really attractive website with all these women holding these little devices with family members, very well marketed. Laura, is there something something you're not telling us? (laughs) No, this was just research. I mean, I was just very intrigued by the whole thing. And uh... And then the, the phone companies 
back when I wrote the first edition, the only way that you could make a phone call to a woman was to do a collect call. So the woman's phone had to say, yes, operator, this phone accepts collect calls. Now they have this complicated system and it's really complicated because it's run by the federal government and mm. the phone companies get paid by the people on the outside, but then they have a kickback wow. to the prisons and to the states that the prisons are in. You this have to read a, it in the book. It's really complicated. It's a massive hustle. There's a lot of money here. It's a oh. hustle, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. I have to say, too, that one of the cases that I really zeroed in on was the case of Jack Abbott, mm. because mm. I, I was <clears throat> looking at his marriage, actually, tonight. Why don't you explain the, the case? It, well, okay, so, so Jack Abbott... I think Laura and I will probably maybe do a little bit of a side segment on this and go further into this. But Jack, Jack Abbott was incarcerated for murder. He wrote a book called In the Belly of the Beast, which actually attracted attention from authors, even Norman Mailer. He was kind of like the talk of the town. And he actually ended up marrying a woman by the name of Naomi Zack who was a PhD at Columbia, ended up co-authoring a book together. I actually looked up Dr. Zach recently, and in any case, she has had another iteration in her career. However, what is interesting about Abbott is that you have Naomi Zach, who was, she's a PhD at Columbia. She was no, certainly a very intelligent woman, and she is married to a guy who's twice convicted of murder, essentially. And that you had the Norman Mailers of the world who were sort of co-sponsoring Abbott in many ways. So in reading about this, Jack Abbott is kind of this fascinating character because he's very intelligent, not a bad writer. But I love what somebody said about him, which is that he's not a writer who happens to kill. He's a killer who happens to write. That to me was a very interesting distinction. And also an important part of that story is that they got him out of prison and he killed again. The yeah, minute exactly. they got him out of prison. Exactly. So well, I'd, like, I'd like to talk about what happened when they got him out of prison. Yes, please yeah. do. Because they he, all championed uh, him as this great intellect who had been... He was in know. a halfway house. He walked into a restaurant in the village and he stabbed a waiter to death. Yes. The young waiter happened to be married to a young woman whose family lives here in the town that I'm from. Wow. Destroyed the whole family. Wow. And then Jack Abbott and Naomi Zack wrote a book about it. Did you know that? Called My Return. And in the book, they said that the young victim of the stabbing walked into the knife. Wow. I never yeah. forgot that line. He took no responsibility for the stabbing. Right. And she's yeah. a big activist again today. Yeah. yeah. What is she doing? She's into critical race theory and she's a professor. She's a lecturer. I think she's at City College in New York. Yeah. Unrelated to this, but it's, terrible story, but it's just kind of a cautionary tale of championing people. Well, the, the father of the young woman whose husband was stabbed, he and I were friends. I can't tell you the devastation that the young woman and the father and the whole family experienced after this. He was like 23, I think. 
Yeah. Well, I think that's often the forgotten part. We talk about people loving murderers or we talk right. about the murder victim. all the time. The victim, my husband's brother was murdered. You forget how families are just absolutely devastated by these things forever. We do that in general, though. Think about everybody knows Ted Bundy's name. I can name his victims because I've looked at the case a million times. I've looked at that, but not many people can name one of his victims. This is our society of celebrity and crime and murder. And something for us to be conscious of as well. And it is interesting that these women don't pay much attention to the victims. You know, it's human nature. The name of your podcast is Ivy League Murders. It's not Ivy League Murder Victims. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yep. It's true. Yeah. And the name of my book is Women Who Love Men Who Kill, not Women Who Love Men Who Kill and Their Victims. Exactly. No, it's true. It's very true. I actually think this book is a must read for anybody who loves true crime. It's so interesting. I just find this book absolutely fascinating and just human nature and relationships and love and in our genre it's just such an important book i think so too lauren i deal a lot with why people especially people who come from privilege who have everything handed to them why they make that ultimate bad decision which is to kill another human being but this answered a big question that i had always had is why women would make a decision to be with somebody like that. Mm-hmm. And and also, Sheila, I just wanted to ask you as well, why do you, because we just brought it up as well, why do you think it's mostly women who are interested in true crime, who are interested in, there's even a skit on SNL about this. Right. So what do you think, just beyond being in love with somebody or thinking you're in love with someone, Why do you think women are primarily fascinated with true crime? Well, I don't want to give you my answer because I'm right now in the process of trying to sell a book about it. (gasps) Yes. I was going to ask you what's next for you. Okay. Only if you promise to come back on. It's called Mad for Murder. Oh, that is the book that we need. I, you, just gave, sub- you just gave me chills. Every, this is the question on yeah. everybody's mind. Yeah. We the get asked. The title is True Crime, Women, and the Patriarchy. Wow. Wow. I mean, this is a question we get asked constantly. Mm-hmm. And it's such an interesting question. And there's so many answers. And mm. I would, well, this I just. book is going to answer the question. And when do you anticipate this book being out? I'm trying to sell it. <laughs> you are you are they'll sell it i mean they'll will, sell this book will this is, sell this will, this you will know be what? a hot laura and i will make sure you sell this okay? i mean everybody <laughs> wants to read this book absolutely okay. this is the hottest question everybody wants to know absolutely and my question to you is when can we interview you about this I know. Book? <laughs> as soon as i sell it okay the first okay. ones Okay, so we're going to have to, we'll, leave, we'll have to leave everyone with that cliffhanger. Yeah, absolutely. Sheila, this is wonderful. Any parting thoughts on this? How can people reach you? I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and I have a website. And if people can spell my name correctly, they can find me. We have your book pinned on our site, and we will post your book and we will post your website. Also authored four other books. The two that I know of are A Hero of Our Own and Muriel's War. And what are the other two? Well, the two that you mentioned are books about the Holocaust and their biographies, and I'm very proud of them. Varian Fry, A Hero of Our Own. Varian Fry was an American hero who rescued 
2,000 people from the Nazis, including famous American artists like the Surrealists and a lot of famous American writers. And the second book, Muriel's War, is a great story about Muriel Gardner, who was actually the true woman behind Julia, the famous story written by Lillian Hellman, who stole Muriel Gardner's life for Julia. And then I co-authored William Kunstler's autobiography, The Civil Rights Attorney. Wow. Wow. He represented the Chicago Seven, Martin uh -huh. Luther King. Uh -huh. And then I ghost wrote a book about Ron Brown. He was the first African-American Commerce Secretary under President Bill Clinton. Wow. So I'm wow. proud of all those. Wonderful. Wow. Very and impressive. I'm going back to true crime with Mad for Murder. Oh, can't wait. Can't wait, too. Can't wait, too. Sheila, thank you so much. What a pleasure to have you. It was great. I had a, a lot of fun. Murder, murder, murder.